My name's Peter, I'm one of the, uh, the pastors at uh, Restoration Church and um, getting pretty excited about heading over to Nepal in a few weeks. That should be good, you should pray for us. Um, lots of good things happening at the church over there in uh, Kathmandu. People getting saved and healed and all sorts of crazy things going on. So um, it's, uh, it's great staying in touch with uh, my fellow pastor over there. I, um, a few weeks ago, I, I uh, actually it might be more than a few weeks ago, um, Sondagel means, in Dutch, it means without money. So that kind of helps you understand a lot about my life. Uh, grew up the son of a preacher, and that was kind of true, and always on the scrounge for a deal, uh, something that's cheap, and the church needed an oven. So I'm looking on Facebook Marketplace, and this oven comes up, and it's free, right, for a Sondagel. It's like, that's awesome, right? And uh, so I went out uh, to this guy, I said, look, I'll, I'll take it, right? And it's actually in our kitchen just next door there. I said to this guy, I'll take it. And I uh, went out there and, and uh, I got talking with this fellow, we got talking about God. And he said this thing to me, he goes, I'm a Christian. And then he followed it up and he said, I'm not a very good Christian, right? I wonder whether you've ever thought that. Um, I think there's a lot of people in... Uh, our community who probably would call themselves a Christian but are not a very good one. And it, it was a curious thing to say uh, for me because I just went, I don't even know what that is. What, what is a not very good Christian? Um, you, know, you know what a good Christian is? Someone who gladfully welcomes and receives all of God's work for them. That's what a good Christian is. But anyway, here's, here's the bottom line. We're just going to see this clash between um, religious people and a man who's received the grace of God. Last week, we looked at uh, this man in John chapter 9 who had been blind since birth. And uh, Jesus came along and in line with the, the prophecies about him, about what the Messiah would do, Jesus came in and healed his blindness. Uh, Jesus in the synagogue read a section of prophecy from, uh, from the Old Testament in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is exactly what Jesus did. And it wasn't just a recovery of physical sight. What we're actually going to see today is that it was a recovery of His spiritual sight, His ability to see Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles there, uh, I'd love for you to go to uh, John chapter 9. We're going to read quite a long <coughs> section. This is probably, <coughs> pardon me, this is probably uh, almost the most favourite narrative piece for me. Um, I mean, outside of the obvious ones in the Gospel of John, maybe in all of the Gospels. I just think it's a fascinating um, uh, story that unfolds. Uh, verse 7, if you've got your Bibles open there, um, specifically says the man, I mean, Jesus made mud, put it on his eyes, sent him to the pool of Siloam, said, go and wash. And verse 7 says, so he went and he washed and he came back singing. Now, the question here is, where's back? Came back where? Well, it's pretty obvious it's not uh, back to Jesus because in verse 12 he goes, I don't know where Jesus is anymore. And immediately we actually see in verse 8 here, uh, mention of uh, his neighbours <clears throat> so it's probably back home, back to his hometown, and that's actually the way the NIV translated. So let's kick in. The neighbours and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? If you're blind, you're a beggar. That's, that's kind of how it works back then. Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. So there's this discussion going on about whether he's the guy. He kept saying, like the blind guy, the formerly blind guy, he kept saying, insisting, I am the man. So they said to him, if you're the man, lots of people like to say they're the man, but um, they said, if you're the man, then how are your eyes opened? He said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said... I do not know. I brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, this sounds like they're dobbing on him, right? Or dobbing on Jesus, at least, anyway. But I don't think that's actually what's going on here. 
Uh, the, the, the religious authorities of the day and something really significant happened and so they think, let's bring this guy to the Pharisees, to the religious people and see what they actually think about this situation. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, you put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Pretty straightforward. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son? Who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Yeah, right. Um, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Sorry, that, that, that's not my version. I just added that. Uh, ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. This, look at verse 22 and 23. This is, this is John's addition here uh, to help you to understand what's going on. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him, probably over 13. Verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Fascinating conversation, quite a frustrating one, right? They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? That's some pretty nice... I mean, he's returned sir, pretty well there, right? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, This is another nice return. Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? They cast him out. Fascinating interchange. We're going to look at... um, Three things today. We're going to look at an honest testimony, religion is a wrecker, and passing the test. So let's kick in. Let's have a look. Have a look at verse 8 to 12 there. We know here that what's happened is the man's come uh, back from being healed, probably back home, as I mentioned before. Um, And and this discussion fires up about uh, who Jesus is and, and what's happened to the man and and, um, and mostly it's just like, is this the guy that, that we used to know, that used to sit and beg? And, and some people don't think it is, and some people actually think that it is, and he insists that he is the man. And, and the obvious question, which, which we looked at in the, um, in the text when we read it, is uh, how did you get your eyes open? And do you know, I, I love this guy's response. It's, it's very simple, right? And the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. It's really, really straightforward. You know what he does? He just goes, this is what Jesus d- said. This is what he did. This is what he told me to do. And now I've actually got my sight. And I want to say to you... Uh, Sometimes I think uh, as Christians, we can make things more complex, which really aren't actually that complex, all right? Um, and, and you need to know that making things more complex is a function of the fall when sin entered the world and shame came with it and pride came with it. Um, what happens is there's a whole bunch of things that are actually really simple that are now really complex and they actually don't have to be as hard as what they actually are. Let me give you an example uh, from my own life. It's only occurred to me... Uh, in the last uh, five years, 
This is a shame, shame to have to admit this, but it's only occurred to me in the last five years that when I get into a conversation and it's a really difficult conversation and I don't know what to do, that I could actually just say, I don't really know what to do. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You, you get in a conflict situation where you're trying to work something out and, you, and in, in your head, or for years in my head, I was like, I don't know what to do. And what would I do? Or you just make something up, right? Because someone's watching you or, or your own pride just makes you feel like you've kind of got to work that thing out. It's crazy, right? Why would you do that? I mean, there's, there's probably a hundred reasons why you could get into a conversation and, and not know what to do and then not be able to say, I don't really know what to do. Or, or you could actually be in a conversation, you could go, I feel like I need some more time and not actually say, I feel like I need some more time to people. Um, what, what I love about this, uh, this guy who is blind is he's, he's, just, he's just honest. You know, and, and see, what, that's simple. And I'm not talking about being rude or being weird or just letting anything you want come out of your mouth because love still needs to rule the day. But as we become more truly human, I think one of the things that God does with us is simplicity returns. And we're just a bit more straightforward and it's just a bit less complicated. It's not that there won't be complex things, but there's going to be far less complex things. Which brings me to the notion of uh, Christian mission, right? And telling other people about Jesus. I've been in in the church my whole life, right? And I've heard all sorts of approaches to telling people about Jesus. And some of them get really weird. Has anyone anyone noticed that? It's, It's like they just get really weird. And, and sometimes, like I would even say, there's sometimes some of the things that get talked about in church about sharing Jesus with other people can get actually a bit manipulative sometimes. You know, that we've got to manoeuvre ourselves around and, you know, what, what programs do we need to put on that we can invite people to and, and then relationships, we build relationships. And Now, I'm not saying that all of this is all bad, right? But we kind of build relationships and it's just so that we can share this message at some point in time. Um, And and there's a manoeuvring sometimes that goes on in relationships so that we can share Jesus with others. And I I kind of get that stuff and I'm not saying it's 100% wrong, but it just weirds me out a bit, some of it, to be honest. Is anyone else with me on that? Okay, well, maybe maybe I need to finish. (laughs) Some of it gives me the creeps a bit. I'm just being honest with you. Um, and it's just not... And part of what gives me the creeps about it is it's just not genuine. It's just not genuine. And, but you know something? I can go with where the blind guy goes. Right? I can go with that. I can go with being honest. That's what I can go with. Um, and, and I think, you know, if you're looking for a place to start in terms of sharing Jesus with other people... You should just be honest. Just be honest. You know, for years, uh, when, when my non-Christian mates at uni would ask what I did on the weekend, I'd never tell them that I went to church. Why wouldn't you just say to someone that you went to church? You don't have to get them to bow the knee and give their life to Jesus, right? You could just be honest about that. You know, my... Um, I, uh, I did uh, design technology teaching training at Sydney University and we were the tradies of the campus, right? And uh, uh, we... The design and tech guys did some dumb things. I mean, they, they, um, they set a ferry on fire that they were on, on Sydney Harbour. That it's pulled the light fitting off. They did, they did really dumb things. We got banned from... Uni activities, I wasn't part of it, right? But it, was, it got pretty loose. It's like you're all going, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you what used to happen on Monday mornings. Uh, we'd all get there before lectures started. We'd sit up the end. I can still see it, sit on these filthy old chairs up uh, the end of this uh, common area. And uh, you know what the lads would talk about mostly is they'd just talk about their, their pub crawls all weekend and all the stuff that they did and... The details, which I, uh, which I can still remember now, not because I want to, but they were quite vivid details. And they'd sit there with a, a throbbing headache um, and, and 
just couldn't remember a lot of it, but I remembered some of it. And, and they would ask me, what did you do on the weekend? I went to church. That's what I did. But did I say it? Like I said before, not early on. I didn't talk about it. But you know, it got to the point with me where I just went, if you can talk about your pub crawls, I can talk about going to church. And I can just be honest about that. Um, and you know something? This is a really good place to start. Because it, it's not a missional strategy. It's just being honest um, about what's going on. And uh, I'm not saying that you're being dishonest, but we could just be more open about that stuff, right? Uh, we would do well to be more honest about what we're up to and the goodness we've found in Jesus. Not to, not, for, not to manipulate people and not to be skillful, not even to win people to Jesus, but just to be honest. And that's, that's what this blind man, I think, is doing in, in John chapter 9. So I just encourage you, uh, here's a good place to start. Just tell people that you go to church. If it comes up where you could actually talk about what Jesus has done for you, you could just say it, right? Um, if you've failed and you need help and Jesus helps you, there's some times where you just probably would be able to just say that um, and just be honest about that. Um, I remember talking with someone, a non-Christian person, uh, hadn't given their life to Jesus and they didn't at the end. Um, of this conversation but we got talking at one point in time uh, about pressure and worry and anxiety and and um, I this wasn't that long ago actually I um, I just shared with him about the anxiety and the pressure and the worry that I have sometimes and then you know what I did I told him how Jesus helps me he didn't bow the knee he didn't give his life to Jesus. But do you see that? Like, that's the kind of thing that I think God would have us to do, is like, let's, let's connect with Jesus really well, and then let's just be honest about stuff, appropriately honest when that stuff comes up. You can do that. And I'm sure that many of you do that. I'm not assuming that you don't, but um, just an honest testimony, an ongoing honest testimony. Be sensitive to the moment. I mean, there's always that reality, but an ongoing, honest testimony. Number two this morning, uh, religion is a wrecker. <laughs> uh, this is 13 to 34. Um, up until this point, it's a good story. Uh, but I, I want you to see that at this point, the story starts to turn, and it all hinges on verse 13 and 14. So the, um, the man gets brought to the Pharisees and then John makes this note in verse 14. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the, man, uh, made the mud and opened the man's eyes. Um, and, and you know that there's something that's actually going to go down just as you're reading the narrative here. And I want to tell you a few things about the Sabbath day and some of the rules that the Jews had just to inform you um, about what's relevant to, uh, to this particular situation. Healing by applying a salve was forbidden unless life was in danger. That was one of their rules. So this guy's life was not in danger. He'd been blind since birth, so you weren't really supposed to do that. Here's another one that, they, that commentators think Jesus probably fell foul of, and it's this one. You weren't allowed to knead anything on the Sabbath, like kneading bread. And so for Jesus to spit on the dirt and to actually mix it up was a kind of kneading. Um, probably would have fallen underneath that category. And, and so what you've got is this setup that the religious people are pretty annoyed by this. And this is consistent with what we see in the rest of the Gospels. And, and you just need to know something about this, is that religion just wrecks stuff, right? That's what it does. Something good's happened, and it just wrecks stuff. Um, because religion is about winning approval and doing something well so that you're proven to be a good person and you can get something good in return. It's, a, it's kind of a rule following. Um, and, and you just need to know that a religious approach to life, an unhealthy religious approach, James 1 talks about healthy religion, an unhealthy religious approach to life is like, I have to be a good person to win approval, to win God's approval, to get good things to come my way. And this is the essence of, of why religion is opposed to Jesus, right? Um, and what 
Because what you actually see here and you see it in this story is that the religious people miss Jesus <laughs> and they stop everyone else or try to stop everyone else from enjoying the good things that Jesus did. It's really frustrating. It's really, really frustrating. And you just need to know this is classically the way that religion actually works. And, um, you know, our response might be, oh, I'm glad it's, you know, we're not like them, all right? But I just would say to you that we just need to be careful, all right? Um, the book of Galatians is, uh, without going into it, is this book about how uh, um, the church in Galatia started on the right foot. They started with God's grace and His goodness and then they switched the cross to uh, earning God's favour by works. And so what I want to look at for the rest of this, uh, this middle section today is just how religion ruins a good story. All right? So let me, let me show you how this works. Here's the first one. Religious people focus more on compliance than people. You see this? This is uh, from uh, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said from this very story, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. This happens all the time. Religion is about what people do. It's focused on compliance and not necessarily help. You know, just think about the dumb rules I told you about the Sabbath and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Go back to John chapter 5. Remember the cripple at the pool of Bethesda. He's been a cripple for 38 years and Jesus comes along crippled for 38 years, Jesus comes along and heals him. And what do the religious people do immediately after that? <laughs> You're carrying your mat. You should not be carrying your mat today. All right? At which point, I just want to punch him in the nose. All right? Because it's like a dude's been crippled for 38 years. He's now healed. And the rule keepers come along and just go, sorry, mate, you can't do that. And so, and so what actually happens with religion is people miss people. Religious people miss people. They don't see them. And it's the same with Jesus. They don't see Jesus either. The religious leaders here um, are blind from seeing Jesus truly. You know, because Jesus has already said earlier on in John that he works all the time. He is God. He works all the time. And this healing is meant to reveal who Jesus actually is. But all they could see was the compliance issue. And it wasn't just Jesus that got missed in the, in the mix here. It was, it was the man who got healed as well. And it's descended into this bun fight about doing something on the wrong day. <laughs> is it ridiculous? Just go, that is ridiculous. To walk right past the work of God because it wasn't done right. And it's still around today. And this is the second thing that religious people do. Religious people miss God's mighty work. This is an extension of the previous point about religious people and an extension of John 9 verse 16. You can see it in spades here. Something amazing has happened and all they're talking about is it being the wrong day. It's ridiculous. There's a uh, great section in uh, Luke chapter 14, which you should have a read of sometime where Jesus presses the religious leaders on this very point about what you're allowed to do on the Sabbath day. Because he went in to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Let me read it for you. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of, of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, here's the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? What do you reckon they said? Nothing. <laughs> right? That's when you know you've got a good point. But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. It's just dumb. It's really dumb. Jesus has done this amazing, amazing work and they don't have an answer and they... They completely miss it. It's just about the fact he didn't do it properly. Well, I reckon if the guy was blind since birth and he sees now, he's done it properly. Is anyone with me on that? It's a good job. Well done. Here's the third one. Some of you know this one. Religion gives people power and control over other people. It's not true power and control, but it does. 
We read this section before, right? They get the parents in and they say to the parents, what's the deal with this boy of yours, right? And I reckon there's almost zero chance that they don't know how he got healed. I think 100% almost that they do. But you know what they know? They know that if they actually say what they, they know or what their sons told, him, told them, they're going to get booted out of the synagogue. So what do they say? We don't know how it happened. Why did they say we don't know how it happened? Because they were scared. They were scared. Now, this is really obvious in this story that religion gives people power and control over other people. But I want you to cycle back for a moment. Uh, because going back a couple of steps, one of the things that we realise is, is that a religious approach to life has a way of making pe people feel more powerful and more in control. And the reason why it does this is because a religious approach to life boils life down to basic mathematics. You do this and that's the result. That's what it equals. Right, now, you might fail at times, but at least you know where the bar is. And, and so what you actually get is you've got this mathematical formula about you do this, this and this and it equals you're a good person. And the people who are really uh, disciplined and really self-controlled are the people who tend to get self-righteous and proud. And the people who aren't, who, who are weak, who fail all the time are the ones that end up in despair. And so the ones that are disciplined and controlled become the powerful ones and the ones that aren't disciplined and struggle are the ones who are weak. And the power that the powerful people wield is fear of kicking people out, of not being in with the good people. And you can actually see that here. You know, the man's parents are under the pump and when they're under the pump, they start ducking and weaving. In the end, they say, he's of age, ask him. We don't want to jump into it. And you know what's happened here is that the power of the religious leaders has led to the parents of the man born blind becoming less human. That's what's happened. They start ducking and weaving and not telling the truth. But notice this, the power of Jesus makes the man more human. It heals him. It brings restoration. And you need to notice that. Here's the fourth one. <laughs> Religious people divide the world into good and bad. It's a very, very black and white world. And then you know what they do? Anyone like to take a guess of which side they put themselves on? The good side, right? Have a look at it in the text in uh, John chapter 9. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Jesus is a bad person. We're the good people. We keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Jesus is a sinner, and you should give glory to God. They're putting pressure on him. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? This just blows up at the end, right? Where they just go, if you won't say that Jesus is a sinner, we're going to call you a bad person and you're out. You're out. And you just need to know that the world of the religious is very black and white. They divide the world into good and bad and they put themselves on the good side and other people on the bad side of the line. And one of the things that actually happens that religious people do is they demonize people who are not on their team. They, they work out where this line is and they go, you're not on our team, you're not one of the good people and say, we're going to demonise you and say that you're a really bad person. And you can see that at the end of this passage. I have seen this so many times. Um, and, and I think, uh, in a more general sense, I think you can see this in spades in the current cultural climate for us. It's all over the place. Like It's not enough to say... Uh, that you've just got a different opinion to someone else, you demonise the person and say they're a bad person because they're not with you. And so there's a weird kind of cultural religion that's kind of going on at the moment where it's like the good people are the people who believe these things and the bad people are the people who don't. And we're not just going to disagree with them, we're actually going to demonise them and say that they're bad people. 
But unfortunately, this kind of dynamic just gets amped up within the church. And, um, and it's a tragedy when it happens in the church because the church is meant to be a place that helps people, not a place that condemns people. And John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life and verse 17 says that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it but to save it that's what the church is meant to be doing not dividing people between the good people and the bad people and putting ourselves on the good side of the line you know I think it runs all the way back to the fall of humanity because you see it in the fall of humanity after Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat what happens after that when God comes along excuses and, gate, and scapegoating that's what comes along what are, what are they doing they're dividing between good and evil and they're putting themselves on the good side of the line I want to say to you this morning the Bible teaches that there aren't good people and bad people in the world it doesn't teach that just bad people who need Jesus. Does anyone give me an amen on that? You know, we understand the world around us better than we want to admit sometimes in terms of this kind of dynamic that can sneak up in our lives. Here's the last thing I want to say about religious people. Maybe there's some here that might be angry with me later, but that's my next point, right? Religious people tend to be angry, judgmental people. It's not hard to hear the anger in the narrative as we read it. Um, and if you read um, Jesus' interchange with the uh, religious leaders in other parts of John's Gospel and in Matthew, Mark and Luke as well, you just see the same thing. There's just anger that's attached to what's going on there. Um, and I want to say to you that um, this is a feature of people who run their lives using a religious framework. They're angry. <laughs> They're angry people. And sometimes when we ourselves end up kind of flipping a little bit into operating with a religious framework that we've got to do good things to be accepted, to, to, to be loved, we can run with low-level anger and frustration as well. And, and the thing with religious people is every now and then the anger and the frustration kind of breaks out, but it can't for long because it's wrong, right? And so it breaks out for a little bit and then they've kind of got to snuff it, but it's actually like this low-level background noise in their life and and there's a reason for it and the reason is this you can never be good enough in a religious system to completely assure yourself of making it you just can't keep all the rules all the time and I'll just say this to you it's really frustrating because I run with a religious framework sometimes inside of me and it's really irritating and frustrating because I break the rules and even more than that sometimes What's frustrating for me is that no one else is keeping the rules. They don't seem to care. And so then I'm angry not just with the whole system, but I'm angry with them as well. And then some stuff can come your way and you just go, not only are those people not playing ball, but God's not playing ball either. This is meant to be a maths equation. And I'm meant to have worked out, I've done all this stuff here and it's meant to equal that. So now you're angry with God, but you're not allowed to be, right? Because that's sin. And if you're a religious person, you can't be angry with God, so you're just angry. Is anyone... No one's going to give me an amen for that, I mean. <laughs> and so religion turns the church, religious people in the church have turned God and the church into some kind of karma, right? That's kind of what it is. It's kind of like you do something good and something good should come to you, should come back to you. So um, I really don't mean to be irritating, but I'm just going to ask you a few reflection questions personally to see how much of a religious system is running in your life at the moment. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I love you, all right? Because it sucks to be operating in a religious system, Okay? And it's much, much better to be connected to Jesus. So your contrast here is blind guy, since birth, healed, honest testimony, religious losers. 
over here who are just angry and cranky and not living their best life now. I'll just say that. That's going to mess with some of you. It was a joke, all right? Here we go. Here's the first one. Now, you're going to push back on some of these, right? But um, just, just get the vibe across the whole... I think I've got eight questions here, right? Because the Bible does say that we should be obedient, and it's true, but obedience doesn't buy you love, it's the result of love, okay? So the first question is, are you a rule keeper? Second question, do you think you're a good person? Or you're better than other people. And, and I don't mean across your whole life. I just mean, do you even have moments of that where you do something and you go, oh, I'm actually a good person? Well, I've had moments. Here's a confession. I have had moments, and it wasn't this morning, as far as I can tell, where I have prayed in prayer meetings and thought oh, that I was really impressive in the way I prayed. Okay, and that other people would, it's like, I, I really got that done, all right? That's an example of that. Three, do other people, even non-Christians, think you are self-righteous? Notice here, I'm not asking whether you think you're self-righteous. Here's the thing, if you're self-righteous, you won't know it. You know why? Because you're right. Someone said, are you self-righteous? You go, no, I'm just right. It's like, well, you... they won't say it because you're not meant to say that, right? But that's, that's how it works. Number, number four, um, do you think you deserve at least some good to come your way? Do you think God loves you more when you are obedient? Oh, okay. That's interesting, right? Now, you, you, will be, you will be closer to God relationally when you're obedient. That's, that's the case with any relationship, right? But do you actually think that God loves you more when you're more obedient? Uh, do you think you deserve the bad things which come your way? Have you ever had that moment? Do you ever feel like you need to clean yourself up a little before you come to God? I have. I had a bunch of years where... Uh, I sat in church and I thought, I, j I can't just come to him. I've got to go and get a few things in line before I come to him. And what I meant was I need to get my regular Bible reading going again, my devotions happening, and then I can come to him. That's religious, right? What about this one? Um, I'm not going to have a show of hands on this one, but uh, I've been guilty of this one. Do you ever try to impress God? It's like some kind of turn of phrase, or you, um, or you did something, and you, and just for that split second, you just went, "I reckon God would be really impressed right now. I reckon He'd be really glad He's got me on His team." Imagine what it'd be like. Imagine what would happen to Christendom and the whole Bible story if I wasn't doing the stuff that I'm doing right now. Uh, it'd be terrible, right? The issue is not about obedience. It's about whether you think obedience leads to being loved or whether you think being loved leads to obedience. It's a big difference, huge difference. Religion says, if I obey God, then he will love me. The gospel, the story about Jesus coming and doing for us something that we couldn't do for ourselves dying on the cross and giving us his righteousness says that God loved you at your worst before you did anything for him. You believe that? 
If he loves you at your worst, there's nothing you can add that's going to be helpful at this point. Religion says, make yourself more lovable and you will be more loved. The gospel says, it is God's love which makes you more lovable. It's a big difference. Religion says, do this and you might be saved. Jesus says, I've done everything so you would be saved. And here's the kicker. Religion never, never leads to joy. You do not come out of John chapter 9 thinking these religious guys are having a good time. Right? They're just not. They're not having a good time. They're angry and they're cranky and they've got a heavy weight on themselves and they're putting it on other people. Religion never leads to joy. Jesus always leads people to joy. Deep-seated joy, freedom and wholeness. That's what we see here. Here's where we're going to finish. Passing the test. Do you remember where this whole thing started? Uh, Way back in verse 1, Jesus noticed a blind guy and healed him. And it got complicated when the religious guys got involved, all right? And what they actually have ended up doing is proving that they're the blind ones. Not the man who was blind. He was, he was blind physically. He's not blind anymore at this point in the story. That proved that they are the ones who are blind. And do you know, in this story, um, it's a good story, a good news story. You, you've got... People heading in the opposite directions. (laughs) The religious leaders are on one side of the road, just running headlong into being more hardened and more blind. And what you've actually got running the other way is the the guy who was blind. There's something opposite that's kind of happening there. Look at the things that he says about, um, about Jesus. Verse 11, talking with his neighbors, he goes, the man called Jesus, he's... Some guy. And then verse 17, uh, what do you say about him since uh, he's opened your eyes? He said he's a prophet. Okay, now that, that's a bit stronger. It's not just a man called Jesus anymore, right? It's, 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 you see something strengthening inside of the man who was previously blind. Um, verse 27 and 28, the, the religious leaders kind of under the pump, they say to him, uh, in, sorry, he says back to them, he says, do you want to become... Uh, his disciples, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Now, all of a sudden, the man's not, it's not just Jesus, some guy called Jesus did something to me. Now, he's, he's, uh, he's open to the accusation of being a disciple of Jesus. So, he's, do you see this? He's getting closer and closer to Jesus. And then in verse 33, uh, the man says, if this man were not from God, uh, he could do nothing. What's going on? Well, One of the things that's going on here is under the pump, true faith rises to the surface. That's what it does. It's an honest, common sense approach to who Jesus was from the blind man. He plays ping pong with the religious leaders and he ends up standing tall under the pressure of the religious leaders, unlike his parents, mind you. What did the pressure from the religious leaders do to this man's faith? I think that what actually happened to this man's faith is his faith got refined by the pressure. That's actually what happened. At the beginning, it's like, it seems like he didn't really know that much about Jesus. And in the end, he's a disciple of Jesus. And we're going to learn next week that Jesus still kind of needs to close the deal on this guy. But the heart change is there. You can see what's actually going on through this story. And I want to say to you, this is the trajectory of those who've been transformed by Jesus. Tests come along and we share things with people about what Jesus has done and it doesn't get received well. But true faith doesn't wilt and die away under that. It actually gets refined and it gets stronger and it gets more powerful. It doesn't get ruder. It gets stronger and more powerful. It gets bolder. This is... um, an ossuary, um, and um, it's actually an ossuary that's uh, dated to uh, 
Oh, look, roughly, it's, it's uh, about 50 BC through to about 70 AD. They reckon it sits somewhere in that 100 years, and it's got an inscription on, on the side of it in Aramaic, and that's the inscription that's written on the side of it, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And uh, you may not know, but this um, ossuary... Sorry, I should explain. An ossuary is... Uh, the, the tradition back in Jesus' day is someone would die, they'd... They'd be put on a, uh, basically on a rock ledge, they'd be wrapped up and put there and then about a year or so later they'd come back and they'd collect their bones and they'd put them in one of these boxes. And so this is, this is a bone box, basically, uh, that would be in a tomb. And this one has got the inscription on the side of it, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And this particular ossuary um, has been the source of huge amounts of debate at an archaeological level. And you can just go and search for it and have a read of it. Uh, one of the best kind of peer-reviewed uh, archaeology uh, journals is the Biblical Archaeology Review. You can go there because they've, they've got a bunch of experts and they're not... I think they're Jewish, uh, the BAR. Um, and I've, I've read quite a bit of stuff from the BAR and uh, their kind of take on it, apparently, is um, that this is actually... James, Jesus' brother, his ossuary, or his half-brother, I guess you could say, right? Um, let, me, uh, let me tell you about James. James didn't believe that Jesus was God. James would have been with his family when they went to Jesus, when he was in his uh, ministry, told him, you better come out. Um, you're crazy, you're losing your mind. I mean... Um, we, we just have this um, story through the Gospels that his family didn't really see who he was. I mean, we even get to the cross and, and someone needs to look after Jesus' mum and, and you would expect probably it would go to a brother, but it doesn't go to a brother. It's, Jesus is hanging on the cross and asks John, the disciple John, to look after, uh, after Jesus' mum. But Jesus appears to James. And it's an amazing, amazing story because if there was ever going to be someone <laughs> who knew that Jesus wasn't God, it's going to be a sibling, right? You know what I'm talking about? Um, they, they would know whether the other person's perfect or not, right? And in particular, there would have been times where they would have said to him, shh, don't tell mum and dad about this, I'm just going to go and do this. They're just going, I can't do that. I can't do that. It would have been really irritating probably at times for sinful siblings, but... But what you've got is you've got this brother of Jesus, James, who, um, who becomes a believer in Jesus and a leader of the Jerusalem church. Um, and Eusebius, a, a Greek Christian historian born around two, 260 AD, tells the story of what happened with James, the brother of Jesus, and... Um, the story goes that James, the brother of Jesus, was marched up onto the Temple Mount and uh, the um, Sanhedrin, I think it was at the time, said, you just need to tell everyone that Jesus is not the guy who he says he is or you've said that he is. And um, do you know what he does? He stands up there and he tells them Jesus is the man. He doesn't, he doesn't recant on any of it. He stands there, I think it's around about 62 AD, and proclaims to the people who Jesus is. And do you know what they do to him? They push him off. And he falls down, and he doesn't die from the fall, so they get down there and they stone him, and then a guy comes along and smashes him in the head with a club, and he dies. That is the trajectory of true faith. All right? It just gets bolder and bolder and stronger and stronger. And that's what God wants to do with you. That's what Jesus' work does. I'm not, I'm not even saying to you that that's what you need to do. I'm just saying if Jesus has done a mighty work in your life, that's where it goes. That doesn't necessarily go to death. That's, that's in God's hands. But it shines brightly. Amen? 
and say, that's what we want to be. We want to be people who, uh, who shine brightly. I wonder if you stand with me, I'll pray and we'll sing and we'll be done. Jesus, we, um, we so need someone who comes along and does everything. We need someone who comes along and says to us, Peter, or whatever your name is, yeah, you got things wrong. But you don't need to try and make those things right by, uh, by good behaviour or trying harder. You can't, you can't do that. It never gets you back. Your record is uh, forever tarnished. Jesus, what we need is someone who comes along and says, um, here, uh, have my record. I'll have yours. And you do, you die on a Roman cross in a public place. In our place. So we, we want to enjoy your grace. We want to enjoy your mercy. And not make it complicated. So we would just say to you today, we have nothing to offer you. Nothing to persuade you to love us. have no bargaining chip and that's just the way that you like it so God I pray that um, even right now that we would we would be reminded of that that we would soak in your provision your gracious provision your abundant mercy and not feel like we have to bring anything. We just uh, we thank you that you love us at our most unlovable. We know that if you can do that, uh, your love will be present at every other moment. Amen.